Zatujcie. 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 Welcome to another episode of The Blind Podsman, a podcast dedicated to the films featuring Zatoichi. I am Jason, and joined with me is Patrick. How are you doing? Oh, hey man, how's it going? Not bad, sir. Um, today we'll be discussing Zatoichi, The Fugitive from 1963. This is the fourth installment of the film series. Uh, but first, how are you doing? Uh, good. I just got back from Los Angeles um, this week. I was there for uh, uh, an extended weekend. Yeah. To uh, yeah. To go explore the uh, the Neon Demon. Went up to Hollywood Hills. Went to Universal Studios. Uh, hung out with Sean Byron, which was oh, nice. cool. Great. So we went out to dinner and then dessert and then he uh, he took me on a quick tour of uh, Mulholland Drive. Oh, how was that? It was cool. I had never been up there before, so um, I didn't know that it's like the longest road in California, too. It's supposed to span like 55 miles. Um, but we went up there and uh, we got kicked out of a park because uh, it was way after closing time. And there was a park ranger up there. It sucks because it's a great view of Hollywood, too. And um, so we uh, we ended up going down a couple roads um, up in the hills and ended up in the house from Lost Highway. Oh, nice! Did you get so, a creepy phone call while you were in there, or I did? We didn't go in, but we we sat outside of it at eleven o'clock at night and took pictures of it. And uh, I think David Lynch actually still owns the place too. I think his daughter lives there, so we were just creepily kind of hanging out outside of this person's house at twelve o'clock at night. <laughs> well, I mean, I hope she's used to it. And yeah. and um. When I was last in Los Angeles visiting Sean, the same Sean that you mentioned, who's, uh, I would say, God, how many years now? He's been a co-host on Junk Food Dinner Podcast, uh, which everybody should go check out if you haven't checked that out I yet. Think, it's dedicated to cult and uh, offbeat cinema. Um, I think he's been on for four years, That maybe? sounds right, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, friend of the show, friend in real life. Sean Byron, um, man about Los Angeles, knows where all these spots are. And when I went to uh, visit L.A. for a Halloween horror movie marathon, which I want to do, like, for the past three years, actually, now. So, yeah, four years sounds right. Uh, But for the past three years, I've been going out visiting him and some other friends, uh, and you as well, Mm -hmm. um, for the Arrow Theater Horror Movie Marathon. He had picked me up from LAX, and we kind of tinkered around uh even though my flight had been delayed pretty horribly he still was quite the night owl and willing to like um tour some of the famous houses in hollywood i think we ended up stopping by the uh original nightmare on elm street house oh <laughs> at nice. like nice place yeah at like 11 o'clock or maybe i think it was 1 a.m or something it was much later than 11 um but yeah i had I had gotten a photo taken 
in front of that house and that's a house that's still inhabited and people live there and yeah I, i'm hoping they're used to it as well <laughs> uh speaking of weird uninhabited places we also went to um the los feliz murder house which uh Ooh. story goes is a doctor in 1959 killed his wife and daughter well he tried to kill his daughter but she escaped um, and then subsequently ended up committing suicide, and the place had actually been abandoned since 1959 and just got bought a couple months ago. Ew. So me and the wife went up there to go uh, snap some photos of it, and we actually got up there as they were doing uh, work on it, funny enough. <laughs> um, I, I think the story goes is that um, there's, like, all the original furniture that was there when the, uh, when the original occupants were there. Um, including, uh, I think this might actually be an urban myth, but including a Christmas tree with unopened presents, because this happened in around December. Oh, man, this is a very creepy house. Yeah, it's a it's a dark little place. And then, funny enough, we, uh, we also ended up going to the Museum of Death afterwards, uh, which was even creepier, <laughs> filled with all sorts of little weird artifacts. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, uh, I read pretty heavily into certain subjects like i'll i'll get onto a subject and then i'll just kind of obsess over it for a little while and oh, one okay. of the things i've been reading a lot about is uh the black dahlia right that's a and, famous uh, uh, la murder case correct yep uh unsolved pretty horrific and um we actually ended up going to at Corey's recommendation broadeners which was the last place she was ever seen um, so we had a couple drinks there. We we actually it's right there on Hollywood Boulevard where we were staying, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty dark little vacation, but it was fun. Well, you had it like in uh, early August, so like in the middle of summer, you had this great dark vacation. So at least it was bright and sunny out. Uh, not oh, that yeah. that's any different for the rest of the year for Los Angeles, but still, I I have this weird attraction to L.A. because it's very. I don't know. There's, it's. I feel like there's a lot of secrets to the place, and I kind of dig that. Like, it, it's a very like kind of. The place is kind of a character in and of itself, you know. But not like a character as it was in a. Oh, what? Uh, it's escaping me now. That that movie with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh oh. Um, Night something. Night stalk. No, not Night Stalker. That's the serial killer. <laughs> no, it was Night Stalker. I think that's what it was called. Okay, yeah, I, well, the, it eludes me, but yeah, that, that used to be the uh, joke, because every reviewer was saying, like, L.A. is a character in Night, this movie. Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, okay. Yeah. Like the X-Man, I see. L.A. is a character in the sense that he seems like a pretty normal guy that you would, like, you know, you might work with, but then he goes home and just has some really weird stuff on his computer. That's kind of what, that's kind of the kind of character L.A. is. Oh, so he's relatable to, like, every podcaster we know, then. Yeah, pretty okay. much. <laughs> okay. Um, Find your favorite podcaster, pull up his internet history, that's Los Angeles. <laughs> Did you do any uh, movie-centric stuff? I didn't have a chance to, but... Um, we were going to hit up a couple places with Sean, but it was uh, they all happened to fall on the day before we left and really late at night, and we had to get back on the road at about 7 a.m., so we uh, unfortunately didn't this time, but I figure in October we probably will, so we'll make up for it then. Right on. What about you? What was your vacation? Well, I did a lot of traveling as well. Um, I went to Chicago for work, and 
that wasn't bad. I had been to Chicago a couple of times, um, having grown up in the Midwest, in Ohio. Uh, it, was, it wasn't unusual to go up there for a week, and if you knew somebody who lived there, you could crash on their couch or something. And, and it was fun in that regard. Um, this time, being more work-centric, I uh, did not see as much of the city as I had really thought I might. I visited a lot of friends that I hadn't seen for a while, and that was fun, you know, like catching up with people I hadn't seen for a bit. Um, I went to the Logan Theater in the Logan Square area. It's this kind of hip, revitalized portion of the city. Um, it's pretty nice if you like hip stuff. Uh, it's right off the blue line, so it's easy to sounds access. Like, sounds like a hip place. It was very hip. I can't say the word hip enough for this one. But there was, uh, they have a movie theater, the Logan Theater, that um, was done up in this swanky Art Deco style. Uh, they did a really good job of it through and through. And also had a cocktail bar and uh, beer cans and bottles available. I think you can bring in the cans. Well, at least I did. Uh, oh. At their permission. Not that I snuck it in or anything. So, um, <laughs> so you can bring in some booze to see uh, whatever movie you like. And it was interesting that they had a couple of films playing side by side. It was one of those smaller art house theaters that can afford to bring in some uh, limited run features while also showing like big budgets. So they had the latest Star Trek film, um, as well as The Lobster, which had basically was a film that came and went through Little Rock pretty quickly. So I didn't get to catch it. So I was thankful that it was still playing. Oh, that's the same case here. I think it was in and out in like two weeks. Yeah, so Chicago had it at least on this one screen, and I finally got to see it, and it was wild. It was quite a trip. Uh, Probably the most original film I'll see this year, Uh, just in tone and in the way it tells its narrative and in the dialogue. Like Everything about this film um, stands out. So the hype is is well understood. I don't know if it's my favorite film of the year, but it's definitely the most original one I've seen. That sounds cool. That sounds like a good time. Yeah. Then I went to Toronto for the first time um, from Chicago uh, last Thursday. And that's my first le- first legitimate trip up into Canada. Uh, family vacation back in like the late 90s ended up us going to Quebec and realizing we couldn't speak French. So we ended up turning around. (laughs) Um, So yeah, uh, being able to actually get a a full experience of Canada was a good time. And I got to see the Tragically Hip on one of their Toronto performances there, which is probably their last tour. Um, Their last official tour. Hopefully they can still collaborate and make stuff while Gord is with us. But uh, that was an excellent show. It didn't do much movie stuff when I was up there, but um, um, is tragically hip the the band where um, this is their last tour because the singer is dying, correct? Yeah, he has a terminal uh, brain tumor. Oh um, wow! It was operated on, and he's gone through chemo and all of that. So, and it was a uh, you know it was at such a stage, an advanced stage that. Doctors are um, very much aware that he's he has uh, uh, 
like this is going to be the thing that um, will be terminal for him. I, I really don't know how to say it without being like uncouth, so I'm trying to like choose my words carefully about it. Then it's also like a huge bummer. But yeah, it's um, it's a uh, it's a big ordeal for them. So they're trying, they're doing this one last hurrah since he was able to uh, not only push this disease back far enough, this tumor back far enough, and uh, regain like speech and all this other all those other faculties to do this, but uh, they just really wanted to do it. Like they had just completed an album and. Uh, this lead singer, uh, Gordon Downey, also just referred to as Gord, um, is a consummate performer and poet. So, And he's a huge icon up there, too. Um, like, I listened to their stuff back in later years of high school, like early college, and that's when I first got into him. So it was, uh, it was an important part of my musical education and life. Um, so like I'll come back to the albums every so often and listen to them and knew I wanted to see them one day and now that time is kind of running out unfortunately I just made a mad dash to get tickets for this and go see this so when I was up there and I would talk to locals uh, uh, Canadians uh, Torontonians and they were asking like oh so why are you here and I would just mention like I'm here to see the hip and they're like okay, you're an honorary Canadian then. Like, that's how much this guy <laughs> means to them. And I had no idea of that going in, so I was always astonished to hear what people, to hear what people would think. Because, I mean, honestly, like, as I was going up there, I was thinking, like, I'm an American kind of intruding on this very dearly held cultural icon of theirs. I, I didn't want to feel like I was just kind of barging in and be like, let me see this show, everybody. I like the hip too, but... I was trying to be reserved and humble about it, and uh, people were actually very welcoming and and uh, appreciative. It was endearing, I guess, to folks. That's good that they didn't have this kind of pretension about them when they were just like, if they were just like, oh, well, you know, we liked them before you did, or something like that. <laughs> no, I didn't have to do any of that um, one-upsmanship or anything like that. I mean, not that I would have. It was just. There wasn't that kind of conversation, which I'm thankful for. Now, he's, he's uh, been around. They've been around for like 30 years, so they've crossed generations. So I guess people are willing to willing to take it that, like, if you like Gordon Downey, you just like Gordon Downey. So anyway, well, it was a good time. Uh, the, it was both sad and happy. I um, don't know if that makes sense, but it's, uh, it was a good experience. I'm glad you, I'm glad you got to go. I mean, I'm glad that you got to do something like that because, I mean, like, you know, uh, especially when it comes to musicians, like, especially considering, like, just this year alone, I mean, a lot yeah. of people who didn't get to see David Bowie or Prince and right. as they're no longer with us. And, I mean, that's just the unfortunate nature of life itself. But, you know, mm -hmm. that's kind of a regret you have to deal with forever that you just didn't get to have that experience, especially with, like, somebody you really admire, you know? Yeah, and this is a guy that I've admired for a while. Like, it was part of that stage where I was getting to singer-songwriters on the whole. Like, it was him, Neil Young, Tom Waits, David Bowie. So he was part of that, and I was, um, yeah, it was a real honor to be able to see it. And to be, like, at the Air Canada Center with, like, 
19, uh, there's like 20,000 people in attendance. So it was all these Canadians like raising their Molsons and singing along to songs that I had sung along with in my car. Uh, and so it was, that was surreal. But yeah, it was a good time. Um, have you ever visited Canada? Have you been there before? I have not. I've actually only ever been out of the country once, and it was Juarez, Mexico, and uh, I kind of don't want to go back. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I've never been to Mexico. Uh, Mexico, from what I hear, is great. Like, if you go to the right places, Juarez is not one of the right places. Um, okay. I went there when I was 17, because ah. um, I had a I had a couple friends in El Paso, and I mean, it was a good time. It's just, you know, it's a... Uh, it's not a super great place to go. Like, I mean, like, there are aspects of it that were neat. Like, there's this big, sp- like, it's the outskirts of it is a big sprawling desert, and you can rent, like, an ATV or something for, like, basically nothing and go out there. But, like, I mean, it's it's one of the more dangerous parts of Mexico, even before the cartel wars kind of broke out. And uh, you can get a steak dinner for $3, which I can't guarantee that it's beef. Um, oh, okay. They just yeah, yeah I know. Steak. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's that joke in Podcast Town about Sean Byron eating a dog, and like, I'm pretty sure what I ate was dog. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I I would go back to Mexico, just not that particular part. Okay. Okay. Oh. Fair enough. I, I well, I've been to Nogales too, but that doesn't really count because half of Nogales is Arizona, so you know. Uh. Um, we're planning on taking a trip to go see family in Hong Kong next year. Um, so hopefully that pans out. Um, maybe even Japan, because apparently it's like a five-hour plane ride from Hong Kong. We yeah, might, uh, in that part of the world anyway. That'd be amazing. We might as well uh, we might as well do both. Uh, originally, we were just going to go to Japan, and I just kind of forgot that um, I have a cousin who is an expat who lives there. And immediately he was like, so you're coming all the way to Asia, but you're not going to come see me. <laughs> hopefully so, there wasn't too much guilt trip put into that uh, so he said come by hong kong so we're gonna start the journey there and just kind of make our way over to japan it'll it'll be fun i hope it pans out um potentially next summer is what i'm thinking and you've been to japan of course and uh yeah you said you liked it quite a bit yeah yeah it's it's um Actually, this is kind of weird to think about, but uh, when I was in Toronto, it kind of reminded me of Japan. I thought it would remind me more of America, and it does, like, in look and uh, in uh, its westernness, I guess. But Japan shares a lot of similarities, like, as far as this uh, uh, high respect that people will have for each other in social interactions it's startlingly similar. I, I don't know if anybody else has mentioned this or talked about it, but uh, for me, it was a huge reminder of Japan. Um, That's pretty dope. I mean, Japan seems like a very polite society, and I imagine Canada is a very polite society. Yeah, I think that's probably what it was. Like, I'm, I, I know it's kind of like where my mind goes to with it, but it's, it's that and a few other things. Um, but yeah, yeah. Hopefully you make it out there, and I hope you all get to see like Tokyo. I think Tokyo is like one of those cities that's just uh, incredible. Like when you're in the center of that city, even though it is near like uh, Mount Fuji, whatnot, like you can kind of see that 
further off in the distance. I still remember being in Tokyo Tower and having this, having like uh, this view of the city where like the city just meets the horizon. Like it just doesn't end. And there's not a lot of U.S. cities that even come close to that. Um, so, when, um, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was just going to say, like, I think Mexico City has a similar look, but, um, yeah. When, uh, when me and the wife went to New York last year, it's the first time she had ever been there. And pretty much the biggest city she had been in before that was Boston, which, uh, not super impressive. I mean, no offense to any of our Massachusetts listeners, um, but we were driving over the Long Island uh, City Bridge into Manhattan, and when she saw Manhattan, it like this thing in her brain just clicked where she had never, she couldn't really like fathom a place that big before. And I imagine that's kind of the same feeling, you know, seeing Tokyo for the first time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's pretty stunning. But uh, Tokyo or Japan wasn't always a polite society, which uh, we're going to get into with our movie Zatoichi the Fugitive, because yes. things weren't always so great for Mr. Zatoichi as a blind masseur. Um, this movie is from 1963, and it is the fourth Zatoichi film, of course, starring Shintaro Katsu, and directed by uh, Tokozu Tanaka who uh, directed the last Zatoichi movie, the new, Z- the new Tale of Zatoichi, also from 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, just turning them out, one by one. Here. Yep, they are just putting these things on a conveyor belt, but, uh, you know, not to, not to, not really a spoiler, but the quality did not drop with this one. Um, I think Shintaro Katsu, this is about the point where he started having a hand in the writing of these movies. He may have started uh, having his hands in the scripts earlier. Um, But I think this is, I'd have to honestly uh, double check, but I think he, I think he basically started having a little more creative control over the scripts, which is not a bad thing necessarily, but... um, yeah, I actually kind of wonder, uh, funny enough, I kind of wonder if that was a thing in the earlier films because we are four movies in and he has had numerous women jumping all over him. And uh, Zatoichi, not a great-looking man. Um, you know, of course, his uh, social status wasn't very high back then. And body-wise, frankly, he looks like me. So I'm kind of <laughs> wondering how much... Uh, how much uh how much of a hand that Shintaro Katsu had and how these stories go. But anyway, um so the this movie concerns Zatuichi um being attacked well, initially starts off with him uh wandering what I thought was the desert at first, because I know there's uh they filmed a couple desert scenes in the sand dunes in Japan. I know that sounds crazy, but in uh in Shogun Assassin so before they actually panned out in the landscape to show you that Zetuichi was just in a field, but they just kept showing him wiping sweat off of his brow, um, looking rather perturbed at the uh, heat, which I understand that because I live in Arizona, and I'm kind of... <laughs> when I saw that scene, I was like, man, I am right there with you, buddy. <laughs> I feel you, Zato. <laughs> um, Zatoichi is uh, attacked by a young assassin who as it turns out um 
was uh, was after a bounty on Zatoichi's head for ten Ryu, and I actually tried to look up what um, what would be the equivalent of that, and I got a little thrown off because I ended up reading a pretty sizable Wikipedia entry about Ryu until uh, I noticed that it was a Naruto Wikipedia, so I just completely disregarded it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, in Naruto currency, that's about 50 cents. Um, but in, uh, it actually turns out that Ryu doesn't really, because maybe partly because it's an ancient currency, um, it doesn't really translate well in terms of, uh, in terms of comparing it to other currencies because it kind of was around at a time where, like, the ja- like the Japanese shogunate didn't really have a very good understanding of economics, so like the value in comparison to like the dollar wasn't really like a factor at the time. So just kind of like you really don't know how much a Ryu is actually worth. So like I've I think someone said that the way that you would measure its value is to how much rice it can buy for a year. I know that sounds weird, but it was an example that I guess was used in. Um, uh, it was used in a book, so... Uh, and then, of course, that price throughout the movie ends up, um, you know, ends up increasing until it hits about 300 Ryu towards the end of the movie. Um, oh, uh, the book in question, I'm sorry, is called The Dog Shogun. Um, okay. Which, I guess, talked about the value of a Ryu... Which can be anywhere between thirty and forty thirty dollars and four thousand dollars, and that is quite the ballpark. So, yeah, that's quite uh, a range. Ryu is a gold coin, so whatever gold was worth at the time, I guess, is what um, what was on what was the price on Zatoichi's head. I'm sorry to get into that tangent. It's just because in the film, the fact that that bounty keeps increasing, I'm like, well, how much is Zatoichi's head actually worth? You it's, know, it's worth a lot of rice, and, quite that, and a that's bit. not a joke. Like when. I'm looking at the conversion rate here, and one real was equal to four koku of rice. So whatever it is, it's going to buy a lot of food. And that, that's yeah. hugely important. And I think it's, like, I understand that's not going to be an easy translation uh, to other currencies because this was still, like, the isolationist period for Japan. So it's very much a point of exchange for stuff that they would need. So it's exactly as it says, like this will get you so much rice or so much uh, brass coins if you wanted to exchange it for any other currency. So, yeah, I I get that it's probably not going to be that related, but the point in the film, as you say, is that it just escalates astronomically. So it starts off at just 10 Rio, and then we see it at the end at 300 Rio. So you can imagine that that was a huge deal for anybody. Like, if one guy wanted to kill him over 10 Ryo, um, you basically get, like, a small gang, of course, at 300 Ryo. Um, And I say, of course, because that's how we see these movies escalating at this point, since at least, like, the last two films. um, The first film, of course, Zatoichi's kind of caught in the crossfire, or he's... He's kind of uh, playing double, almost seems like he's playing double agent between two Yakuza gangs. But then from that point on, Zatoichi just kind of seems to stumble upon one large gang on his own and makes very short work of them. 
uh, yeah, single handedly. We've established like in this series that like Zatuichi is not easily thwarted by one person. Like, um, it's kind of just that's what the filmmakers have to put up against him is that like it's not. It's only acceptable for him to be fighting one person, I guess, to the audience if it's, like, the last fight of the movie, which, you know, of course, the last fight of this movie was a one-on-one battle. But it seems that whenever Zatoichi just has a normal encounter, it's always against multiple people. And, of course, like you said, he tends to dispatch them fairly quickly. Yeah. So basically, like, what we can loosely establish as a formula for these films is... Wandering shot of Zatoichi, uh, his getting to know the structure of a certain small town, interactions with a young woman, uh, a display of his swordsmanship, kind of like in a parlor trick, sometimes involving like dice or whatever, but usually like him at the center of attention, uh, like... uh, unsheathing and resheathing the sword with an expert cut. And then tensions build. Sometimes somebody's murdered or kidnapped. And then finally there's a large battle that uh, reduces down to a one-on-one fight. And then Zatoichi going off again. In video game terms, it's the sub-boss to final boss kind of transition. Yeah, pretty Um, much. Pretty much. Um, But still pretty enjoyable. Although I have to say this is... Uh, my least favorite of the four that we watched so far. I, you know, I would agree with you. Um, I'm not in any way saying that it's a bad film by any means. Like, um, I think that I was a little more impressed with the new tale of Zatoichi or even, uh, even um, the tale of Zatoichi continues. I, Mm. I think that this is, I think that although I enjoyed those two movies more, I think this movie is kind of a better balance between what you're going to get in a Zatoichi movie, whereas like you have the more action-packed, um, you have the more action-packed. Uh, the tale of Zatoichi continues in comparison to the more, to the slower, uh, the new tale of Zatoichi, and I yeah. think this one is this film is where it kind of hits its balance of being perfectly story heavy while also having a decent amount of action in it and i you know for the most part i found the plot of the movie as whereas you have zatoichi the warrior and you have zatoichi the warrior in the new tale of zatoichi or the tale of zatoichi continues you have zatoichi the lover in the new tale of zatoichi and in this one you have zatoichi the mediator um he finds himself of course, between two rival gangs. This is a theme that's going to come up a lot. But instead of uh, siding with one gang to fight the other one, which is what happened in the original film, he more or less tries to quell this conflict that these two gangs are having. And, um, of course, he finds himself in not only uh, a romantic a romantic situation with Tane, who was his original love interest in the first Zatoichi film, but also kind of the mediator between uh, this young Yakuza banker and the daughter of a, of an inn owner um, who are trying to, I guess, uh, or having a bit of a lover spat. I'm not totally sure where their situation arose. I think it has to do with the fact that the father doesn't necessarily accept him 
as a suitable um, husband for his daughter. But um, yeah, it's it, it seemed that while it, it just seemed that like Zatuichi and, and actually what I want to get at too is while this is Zatuichi the mediator, you're also seeing a lot of an angrier Zatuichi too, especially considering what happens at the end of the film. But it seemed that it feels like there's a lot more rage in Zatuichi, and that's apparent from the very beginning where he fights this young Yakuza, who, you know, the Yakuza insults him, and Zatuichi has the line, well, now you've made me angry, and then he kills him in one motion. Yeah. Uh, and just to and place you- names with him, uh, Sakichi is the, the young Yakuza. He's the heir to a Yakuza group. And he's kind of put in this awkward position by the opposing Yakuza group um, that's run by, I believe it's, it's a boss. Is it boss? It's like Igari, I believe. Yagiri. Yagiri Tokuyo. Yagiri. Yeah. Um, who's basically trying to make a power play for uh, the land that Sakichi is supposed to inherit. And Sakichi is is in love with uh, the innkeeper, yeah the innkeeper's daughter Nobu, and so and, those are um, the two kids that uh, he's trying that Zatoichi is trying to mediate between. Um, also, we have Tane making a return, which actually means that I was wrong because I initially thought that this movie was separate from the previous films, and to a point, it still is. There isn't really, like, a plot carryover so much as just, like, this one character returning. Right. Um, who he thought was going to marry a carpenter, but as it turned out, had married a, another Yakuza, who ends up, of course, being um, Zatoichi's rival by the end of the film. The uh, the final boss, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Master um, Tanakura. He's a uh, ex-samurai... Uh, Wandering Ronin, um, who gets hired by Yakuza to take out uh, Zatoichi. Um, so uh, he, Zatoichi, this is where it gets a little weird to me, and I understand that there's a cultural context to this, but um, Zatoichi is fighting uh, the notion that Tane has grown up pretty much. Um, there's a line at the end of the movie where, uh, what, uh, the, uh, Tarakura, Tarakura, I'm sorry. That's um, right. upon his death states that she doesn't, you know, girls, do, you know, girls don't stay 17 years old forever unless you're Wooderson from Dazed and Confused, but, <laughs> um, all right. All right. And it's, it's odd because I can't, you know, of course, then his, his reveal, at the end, which we'll get into, I'm you're not totally sure whether or not he's telling the truth or not. Yeah, the the way he sets it up is that as as he lies dying uh, from the duel with Zatuichi, and of course it is like Zatuichi is going to win, but it's a it's a great, well shot duel. I will say that um, when he's dying, in he's he's saying that the arrangement, this kind of springed operation that was meant to lure and trap Zatoichi in the in the uh, burned out inn where Nobu's original family was from. Uh, it's where she was found, actually. 
like the as an infant, yeah, as an infant, yeah, her family apparently died in the fire, had left or something. So, Zatoichi is told that uh, the rival Yakuza gang is holding Otane at this location. He rushes there only to find that uh, Tanakura is, is waiting for him there. And what should be mentioned about Tanakura as the main rival in this film, uh, what kind of makes it different is that there doesn't really seem to be a lot of chemistry there, which is kind of weird to say about duelists like this. But if you think about it in the first one, Tales of Zatoichi, it's a similar type of ronin that uh, Zatoichi ends up meeting with a couple of times. They talk and share together. They know they're probably going to fight, but they end up like drinking sake together and all this. Um, the second movie, Tales of Zatoichi continues, it's uh, his brother. In the third installment, right. the third installment, it's his master. So it's that like uh, teacher-student relationship that's of huge importance in Japan. So it's these very deep connections. And with this guy, we get a sense that they have a past, but it's never explored as fully as those past installments of the series. Um, you know, the thing I really like about that is, and this goes with, um, I recently saw the movie Suicide Squad. Okay. Um, it's not a very good movie by any means. All right. And, there's this thing that's happening in these kind of movies where you have a group of people who hate each other and they end up having a bar scene where they end up liking each other at the end. Mm-hmm. And I like that Zatoichi is the opposite of that because you have two people who are semi-mutual towards each other and then after the bar scene, that's when the conflict starts. <laughs> <laughs> well put, yeah. For this one, the most history that we get from this are these important shots of... Uh, their their forearms, their right forearms. So when I mentioned that there was a um, Zatoichi sword demonstration scene, it's when the Yakuza bosses are gathered together and there's a promotion that's taking place. So some of the boss groups are donating money to this. And Zatoichi steps into the center of this room and boldly tries to present himself as a peer among them, which again, being Zato, being this blind masseur, they take immediate offense to it. Like, okay, are we being made fun of? What is this? Because not only would they take offense at him being a blind masseur doing this, but they also know it's Satoichi. So they don't really know what's up. And To, um... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt anything. I was going to say to to our one or two listeners who are really upset that, uh, we keep referring to him as Zatoichi, even though his name is Ichi and Zato's the title. We know. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only saying Zato in the in the sense that that's where he is in the class system. Ichi yeah, being the name, that's... Zato being his uh, class position. Here's... And hey, we're not the only ones either. They do it in the movie too. <laughs> yeah. Depending on how they want to refer to him, with respect <laughs> or with um, a demeaning tone. In this case, it's a demeaning tone. So, Zatoichi is trying to basically make a statement. He offers them 300 ryo um, as part of this celebration. Again, just kind of a a goof, a gesture uh, to them. And uh, Master Tanakura shows up and confronts them. And they have a 
Minor Spat in the middle of all these Yakuza bosses who are ready to kill both of them. So it's this weird kind of high-tension moment. And Tanakura, of all people, decides to do the first sword demonstration. So Ichi's holding this uh, cup in his hand, and Tanakura does a quick unsheathing, resheathing, and cuts the, uh, cuts the cup in half. Kind of like if you've seen a bamboo shoot get cut in half, how it's like at that angle. And he feels right. pretty pleased with himself. But then uh, Zatoichi pulls out some dice. So there's not like a, there has to be a dice reference in this film. And this is the one he doesn't gambling. He doesn't gamble in the, with it though. Although he kind of takes a gamble. He flicks it into the sake bottle, which is a very narrow opening. So it's this very tiny dice going into a very tiny bottle that's being held in the hand of one of the Yakuza boss members. And they're already kind of impressed, but then Zatuichi does his sword unsheathing trick and he cuts the bottle vertically while it's still in the hand of, I believe it's boss uh, Yagiri. Um, and then the bottle like falls in half and the dice falls in half within it. So we're seeing like all these antis upped from the previous films. It's not candles anymore. It's just shit that people are holding. So Zatoichi <laughs> is getting is getting more uh, amplified in his talents and whatnot. So this leads to an interesting scene. The point of my bringing all this up is that uh, Tanakura is egged on by the bosses to, you know, make short work of Zatoichi. And again, we don't know a ton of the history behind the two. But Tanakura goes for it. Very unusual, because everybody knows that you're not supposed to take on Zatoichi ever unless you have a gun. And we'll talk about that later. Um, but he ends up getting a very tight, contained duel with Zatoichi. It lasts only for like a few seconds, his blade's flying. But Zatoichi ends up getting wounded on his right forearm. And... Tanakura makes this statement it's like, I got him back, you know, we're we're one for one now, so I'll just kill him later. So he's satisfied. It isn't until later when you see this shot of Zatuichi or excuse me, of Tanakura, his right forearm has a scar on it from what we can assume is a blade. It's this close shot when he's like walking in front of the camera and you see like this very clear shot of his right forearm where he was wounded. So we can assume that they had fought before, and Zatoichi probably had cut him and spared him. So he came back to do that at least. And then towards the end, when like Zatoichi's making his way through the Yakuza gang to, to confront Tanakura for uh, killing Otane, um, we get a similar track shot, and it shows Zatoichi's fairly recent wound, although it's from like a day or two before, it's bleeding through the bandit as if it's like a, a beacon that he's getting closer to this guy who did it. So it's very, ups <laughs> I'm very distressed that we don't get more information about the history between these two, except for their right forearms. There you are. Great. All right. Um, can you start back when you were talking about, um, uh, you feel like the film series is going to have this a lot. You said something about a beef. Um, yeah, okay, ready? Yeah. Three, two, one. Um, I feel like as we get further and further away from the earlier films and they start using more and more people who may have had a beef with Zatoichi in the past, mm -hmm. you're going to be getting a lot of that subtle storytelling 
Ah, okay. Um, especially considering that I feel like you're, for the people who are not paying quite as much attention in this film, the context of their uh, of uh, their rivalry is based on Tane. But yeah, yeah. As you said, I mean, like, there's little subtleties that show that maybe they've had a run-in in the past, especially considering the forearm thing. And also... Um, the symbolism of his wound bleeding. Yeah. Um, as he gets closer and closer to fighting this man, I, you know, it's funny. There's an anime called Samurai X where, uh, the main character has a very, um, his kind of like his signature, like, I guess his distinguishing feature is a cross shaped scar on his cheek. And, in this, uh, it only happens in the OVA. It doesn't happen in the TV series. But um, when he gets closer and closer to this, uh, the final conflict of the film, it, the scar starts to bleed. Um, hmm. There's a reason for that, but I think that might be a direct reference to this. Although I could be just drawing, you know, I could be just. Uh, it, it's broad enough. I could just be seeing something that's not there, but it is something to think about. I wonder, hmm. I wonder if it's a large, like you, when you mentioned the symbolism of it, I wonder if there's a, uh, a deeper symbolism in, in Japanese narratives about like a wound bleeding when somebody's near a rival or something like that. Like not something that happens um, commonly, but like within storytelling, um, you know. Like a, a sweating brow to indicate nervousness or uh, something like that. Maybe it's supposed to be a form of, like, a lack of closure or something, but I, I'm not totally sure. I guess we'll look into it later. Yeah, it's only only just now, like, talking about it with you is it coming more in my attention. But, yeah, I'll check that out. It's, it reminds me of, um, um, I think it was... The last one we watched, the the new tale of Zatoichi, um, where there was that, what was that? The cat in heat, the the tomcat reference that they make. Like it must, oh. it might be something culturally Japanese that we're not aware of. A thieving cat. Thieving cat. Yeah, that's right. That can get you killed in Japan, apparently. <laughs> apparently, yeah, as we found <laughs> out. Um, so. We've got uh, all the elements there that we mentioned, um, including the love interest, although it's kind of... I mean, Otane is unrequited. Like, we've seen Zatoichi meet up with women before, but even since the first one, he and Zatoichi... Or, excuse me, he and Otane never formally, like, meet up as he has in the past. Like, they barely even touch, really. Yeah, uh, uh she was pretty much just basically a cameo in um in Tale of Zatoichi continues like right. right she was there but he didn't really like he didn't really uh express like any kind of romantic interest in her yeah. nor did uh nor did he in the first movie either mm-hmm. um so it's kind of weird that he has this all of a sudden kind of um deep affection for her whereas like you didn't really get any of that in the previous films yeah it's this sort of unrequited love and um what's kind of stranger and contrary to that is we get one of the first shots 
of people embracing and kind of like nearly in the throes of passion in this film. And that's Otane with the samurai warrior. Um, when she's, when she had just come from meeting up with uh, Zatoichi and she's basically upset at this, at how their paths have differed. Like, I guess just wondering how it could have been different had they stayed together or been together initially. Uh, she goes back to her husband, uh, Tanakura, and the line is very clearly like, you know, make love to me and, and all this. Well, she doesn't say and all this, but <laughs> and you all get this. The, make love to me and all this. But um, <laughs> she's she's upset and she wants to feel loved and this the shot is of them like just kind of writhing around the floor together and we haven't seen that before like we've seen zatoichi like the next morning after right. being with a prostitute in other instances of like zatoichi near or around women or you know being the embrace of a woman that he's proposed marriage to or his proposed marriage to him rather um but this is a very unusual first for this film series and um, there's a few other firsts that we see in this too. Like we've heard about guns in the past films, but we've never seen one on screen. And this is the first time we see like a, a rifle, not just on screen, but also in use pretty extensively towards the end. You also have um, the innkeeper, Nobu's father, threatening Zatuichi with a rifle, which I didn't realize was a rifle at the time. I thought it was just a cane until he got really close to it. Yeah, and then... Um, the Yakuza gang outside feeling that this guy's kind of off of his rocker because he's, he's demanding that he, re- he sees his daughter Nobu, uh, gets his daughter Nobu out from the house that's being surrounded by these Yakuza members. Uh, he's, like you said, he starts firing the gun wildly, which is a rifle, so it's like you get one shot to fire wildly, and he does it in the air, and then they take him out pretty quickly. The swordsman kind of gets the jump on him. And uh, Basigiri asks if anybody can handle a rifle, and somebody in the group claims to be able to, and that becomes a threat to the holdup uh, Zatoichi and Nobu. And uh, oh, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name now. Uh, Sakichi. All three of them are inside this house during the final um, events. The last 20 minutes of this film um, just go up to fourth gear, whereas most of this film feels pretty slow. Uh, in my case, like the last 20 minutes are just intensely action-packed. Yep, zero to murder in three seconds. Yeah, um, just about. And that rifle, actually, I'm not even sure what happens to it. Like, I thought there'd be a scene where he cuts it in half or something, but basically, like, this guy is firing the rifle into this uh, burned-out inn where the three people aforementioned are hiding and when Zatoichi learns that um, Tanakura has murdered Otane outside Nobu sees this happen but is unable to relay it Sakichi is actually the person who says yeah that samurai killed that lady out there because uh, Sakichi is kind of a kind of adult in this film <laughs> he's he's not very bright and kind of a coward He's well-meaning. Um, I guess, yeah. He's like, well, you want to know what happened. And, of course, that sends... Well, I mean, this is the first time we see, like, Zatoichi in a... in a uh, such a determined rage mode. Uh, once he learns of Itani's death, 
he kind of does his eye-opening stance, but uh, just makes his way through the crowd. And, and there's just nothing done with the rifle. Yeah. Just takes him down, like, quickly and savagely and without mercy. Yeah, the shots in this one, um, it's the same cinematographer as uh, the first film and the third film. It's uh, Chishi, Chishi Makiura. And it does kind of look like the first film in some ways. Like, it's very bright outside, just like that last scene from the first one. Uh, there's no... There are no, like... Uh, um, close confined shots. Like, I remember that being a point of interest with the first one that we watched. There's some really interesting tight shots in that film. This one, it's basically like the the large sweeping shots, except in the first one, we didn't see Zatoichi making short work of groups of people. So it's like if it was that those first that first film, except it wasn't just Zatoichi versus Samurai, it's Zatoichi going through everybody too. Uh, interesting thing I noticed, um, especially with the shots, and this is actually a scene that for some reason we both completely... Uh, both completely kind of um, missed, but uh, the wrestling match in the beginning. Um, yes, another first. Yeah. We see like sumo going on. Zatoichi is a wrestler and a very good one at that, but as a, as um, as it transitions away from that wrestling scene, they do a scene swipe, which um, was, I believe, originated by Akira Kurosawa in The Seven Samurai, um, but is more popular uh, nowadays because of George Lucas using it heavily in the original Star Wars movies. You know what? I'm, I'm I remember the wrestling, but I have to go back and watch this transition now because that is super interesting. <laughs> it's very quick, and it happens once, and I actually had to rewind it to make sure I was seeing that. But yeah, um, he does a. There's a quick little scene swipe, which this predates Star Wars. So, and I could definitely see Kurosawa having you know an, an influence. influence in some of his movies. Yeah. Okay, I have to. Well, now I have to check that out again because I find that it super is fascinating. Right after the wrestling match, like right as the wrestling match ends, it just transitions into the next scene of him eating, and yep, there you go. Okay. And it only happens once, I believe, which I think is a that's an odd spot to put it, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, the wrestling scene itself is uh, is pretty interesting too. Like we hadn't seen any. I, I like that these movies keep bringing in. Um, cultural traditions into the films and it's always something new and in this case with it being sumo like we kind of assume that Zatuichi is going to um sweep this competition um i love that we're calling it a cultural tradition whereas like in the context of it happening it's like watching people wrestle outside of a gas station <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah to make it a little bit more clear like when we see this it is just kind of this crowd gathered outside in a makeshift ring um, yeah, so it, it is kind of like this this weird uh, Street Fighter uh, aesthetic going on. But uh, all the touchstones are there. Like, Zatoichi kind of gets his mind games power play going by doing the sumo motions. Like, he does the squat, he does the clap, he holds his hands out, and it looks like he's about to do the ceremonial salt throw, but he does it intentionally late, kind of playing off the fact like, oh... So sue me, I'm blind. I don't know how this works. But he does it intentionally to get sand in his opponent's eye, or like the salt in the opponent's eye. So he's like, oh, whoops, okay, well, let's fight anyway. And um, 
the other point is that he does his little like his little pincher motions after he wins the first match. You notice that he's not getting into like these bear hug uh, confrontations during the match. He's actually using his masseur knowledge to do basically pressure point uh, weaknesses on his opponents and get them out of the, the ring that way. The the first gentleman he fought, he actually uh, knocked right out of the ring with just one solid hit to the shoulder, which yeah. uh, was very impressive. He's he's all about those shoulders, man. Ever since that last movie when he's talking about, like, he's just rubbing a guy's shoulders, like, oh, you're a samurai, aren't you? I can tell. Your shoulders are and, um, very strong. You know, this is what I mean earlier about uh, how much Shintaro Katsu has in uh, in the way of how these how these movies go uh, in terms of Zatoichi's love interest because you see Zatoichi without a shirt on and, you know, he's not the most fit dude on the planet, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, he's not a slob by any means, but, you know, you'd ex- I guess for the speed and strength that, this, that he exhibits, you'd expect more. But, I mean, that's kind of cool that he just kind of has an average dude body, you know? Yeah, yeah, I I think that's part of what makes him so popular. I was trying to consider, like, how'd they get so many of these churned out? Because we've seen, like, five in just two years. And then in the following year, 1964, we're going to have four additional films come out. So what's the appeal of this guy who is not, like, who who probably would not be traditionally handsome or sought after to be on screen? But I think he's just got such presence. Like, even though he has... In addition to having like a very average body that uh, a lot of average dudes could probably relate to, um, and he's, you know, I think also it's not like whereas I, you know, the thing you can, the person you can compare him to the most in terms of Western culture is James Bond. Yeah, and whereas James Bond was a traditionally handsome dude, Tarakatsu isn't really. But that also goes to show the cultural differences between East and West is that. Zatoichi's masculinity and his ability as a as a uh, as a fighter is more important in these films than how he looks, you know. Because like James Bond, of course, you have this like typically handsome. It's weird saying that about like Roger Moore and you know Sean Connery, who at the time looked like an old man even when he was young. But I mean, that's just kind of what was considered handsome at the time. Whereas like Shintaro Katsu has a very rugged look to him. Yeah, and that's part of that presence that I'm talking about is, uh, especially at the very end, like there's not a, a lot of close-ups that we're used to from these films in this one, at least in the from the first three. We don't see those as much in this film. It's all like, like when you say there's more balance, it does feel more like a movie as we're probably more accustomed to, uh, at least like an action movie. But at the end, during the resolve... Um, when he resolves with the the mother of the assassin that he killed from the beginning, uh, this uh, older woman named in the movie named Maki, and he also meets up with Nobu and uh, oh, this guy's name Sakichi. <laughs> like the three of them are basically they're all making amends with Zatoichi, uh, bowing, apologizing, and um, regretting any past actions that they had taken against him. But was that Tuichi, you know, he's he's all about forgiveness when when that's an option. Uh, so he brings them back up and says his goodbyes. And as he's leaving, he's going down the path and there's a bit of music playing and he starts to dance. He's doing like a traditional folk dance. And he starts laughing. 
but then as like he gets out of the frame of that shot like further and further away from those three there are these close-up shots of his face and like we brought up in previous episodes some of these close-ups of Shintaro Katsu are the most intense close-ups probably in film history uh especially this one like this again for me this film doesn't have as much going on for it as the previous films did like i think there's a lot of interesting things in the previous ones this one not so much for me but uh this final shot where it's just a close-up of his face and he's trying to you can see him actively trying to retain like his his goat his like resting pleasant face that he kind of puts on for everybody but it's this kind of a pagliacci moment where he's He's uh, trying to stay happy, but he's just murdered, like, so many people. And this unrequited love of his life is now gone. So he keeps, like, his face keeps falling, but he keeps trying to dance and smile. And he just looks so intense. And, like, the camera, that's what it ends on. Like, so the shot goes to black as it's him, like, just tensing his brow and just trying to force himself to look happy. It's a really, and, that's my favorite shot for this film. And even um, in the scene where, uh, towards the end, when um, he, he joins, he, he joins um, Nobu, Nobu's hand with, um, Sakichi. sorry, I can't, Sakichi. Yeah. There's kind of like this vibe of like him basically saying, hey, don't be like me. Like, you know, this is like saying to them, be together and be happy and live a, a life of peace because this is the alternative. Yeah. And yeah. It, it is depressing how like he's, you know, dancing away and even like, even to like the people near him, like Maki and Sakichi and Nobu, it seems somewhat perplexing. But then like, as soon as he gets out of, you know, view, he's back to just being depressed, sad. Yeah. Because he just, he just can't seem to avoid like this conflict, right? Um, Which Maki points out earlier, like Maki being the mother of the uh, son that was murdered at the beginning, or at least was um, killed in retaliation for trying to murder Zatoichi. Um, Zatoichi had like gone to her and confessed this and everything, and it becomes this this point of agitation where she wants. At first, she seems okay with the honor that he's presenting and admitting to it but then she just slowly gets more and more embroiled and angry with him and makes some moves to try to get back at him realizes she's made a mistake and then tells him like uh you have to get out of here because you're just you're just bringing death wherever you go like even have a history of this um it's very upsetting and of course, that's that is our uh, that is our closeout lonely man scene, and the film is done. Yeah, that's Atuichi number four. Yeah. So, what are your uh, what are your final feelings on uh, on the fourth Atuichi film? I I don't think I would recommend this one to anybody that uh, wanted to get into it. I would probably recommend any of the first three. Um, this one was like I mentioned before, not my favorite. There's a lot of new things that we get to see in here, like the wrestling, the different sword demonstration. Uh, also, we forgot to mention, this is the first time that we see his sword... Uh, oh, no, this is the second time we see his sword break. His sword broke in the second feature, too, correct? 
Yes. Yeah, that's his, uh, another instance where his infamous sword cane is, is split. Uh, but he still comes out on top, obviously. Sure, it won't be the last. Yeah. <laughs> and also, it's the end of Otane, who's one of my favorite characters in this series. Like, I love the actress. I think she's great. Um, the actress being uh, Masayo Banri. Um, this is her last time being in these films, and I think she brings such a high element of emotion and drama to it. I'm also kind of bummed on how it ends. Like, the death scene of the rival samurai, we didn't get to touch on this, it's kind of ridiculous. The guy is really hamming it up when he's trying to deliver these lines, these last lines to Zatoichi. But his face contorts in such a... I mean, it kind of looks like he's in pain, but it also looks kind of hilarious. Um, not to be morbid about it. Not, not, to, mention, not to mention that Zatoichi... Um, the way he kills him is kind of a deus ex machina. Like, well, I don't know if that's exactly the right term, but it was just like, sword is broken, down on the ground, what are you going to do? Secret knife. Yeah, um, the secret knife thing. I thought at first that he was using, like, what was left of the sword that he had, like the, the little bit of blade. But yeah, it was, it was, it appears to be a secret knife, and I was kind of bummed out by that too. And also the fact that this guy leaves this sort of philosophical question which isn't even a philosophical question. It's just this weird conceit that he's like, hey, just so you know, that um, ambush at the end, that was all Atane's plan, not mine. Uh, how does that feel? Truth hurts, doesn't it? I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why is this? Well, not, not only that, but there's nothing in the movie to imply that that's not just absolute bullshit he's saying before he dies either. Like, Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I, if there was any sort of hint that that might be the case... I'd probably be more into it, but we see all these scenes of Otane in private um, basically mourning the relationship she never had with Zatoichi. So why was, how would she have ambushed? I, I don't, I don't understand why she would plan it or why she would do it, but. Um, it just seems yeah. for lack of a better word, he was talking out of his ass. Yeah. Yeah. And for, and on that note, yeah, a lot of this, a lot of this film to me, kind of feels like they were forcing in parts that didn't need to be there to begin with. And I feel like the other films are willing to let the films breathe. Like if they don't, they're not going to shoehorn in a weird rivalry or um, bizarre dialogue, even though there is bizarre dialogue in the previous ones. Um, I just, I was feeling it more in this film. So yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to revisit this one anytime soon. What about you? I, you know, like I said in the beginning, I, I feel that this movie is a lot more balanced than the previous films, but that doesn't necessarily make it a better movie. Um, I felt that, like you said, this movie kind of dragged on until the very end when it just completely just turned it up to 11 and uh, sort of started going crazy. Um, Zatoichi loses it. He kills like 30 people. And then, of course, the final battle. And, you know, these movies... I'm not going to say that they're not formulaic because they absolutely are. They all follow, they all follow like uh, the same structure, at least from what we've seen so far. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's just kind of yeah. the nature of the genre itself. Sure. Um, I didn't really feel as compelled or attached to, or compelled to really kind of have an emotional 
connection with any of these characters. I felt that um, I felt that Zatoichi himself, while being a lot more controlled, didn't really exhibit his personality quite as much as he did in the previous movies. Agreed. Yeah. Um, it's. I guess maybe this is the last bit of connection that we're going to have to the original three, but I'm not totally sure. Um, Otane being gone is kind of a bummer, um, especially considering that, like, you know, her character, at least, like, you know, her character seems to have lived with a lot of regrets and she just kind of got, like, the worst ending possible, of course. Um, uh, You know, it's not... I wasn't quite as excited by this movie as I was by the last three, so I'm going to have to agree with you. I probably don't see myself going back and watching this anytime soon. Not to say that it's bad by any means, but, I mean... Compared uh, to the others in the series. Yeah, compared to the others, especially compared to uh, the Tale of Zatoichi Continues, which I... I, You know, I I went back and forth between that one and New Tale of Zatoichi, and I rewatched Tale of Zatoichi Continues, and I feel like so far that's kind of the gold standard of the series. Hmm. Um, But that's just me. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I would say that... It's not... I'd say it's probably my least favorite of the four so far. Uh, now, I mean, thinking about it more, like I, I feel like I like it less and less the more I think about it. Yeah, there, there's one other shoehorn thing that I kind of want to like about it, but again, it just feels weird to me that we hadn't mentioned yet. And that's the um, kind of weird appearance by this this other samurai wearing like a uh, a the uh, con- the cone shaped farmer's hat in a very heavy-looking outfit. And he approaches Atoichi just as a cameo in one scene. And it's by, like, a riverbank, and they seem to know each other, and they're just like, well, it's good to see you. I hope to see you again sometime. And I didn't know who this was. I had to look it up. And it's this character named Chuji of Kunisada. And he's kind of like the Robin Hood of Japan. He had... There was a movie series about him, like in the fifties, where actually throughout, like G of Kunisada makes an appearance in this film just to say hi to to Zatoichi, and it's a weird, it's a weird thing, uh, just because he kind of shows up, mentions the Yakuza gangs that are there, says this town has trouble, and then they just go their separate ways. He doesn't do anything else with him. So it's this thing where it's like, I think they're trying to meld, like this is their attempt to meld Zatoichi with uh, not just like um, film history, like Japan's film history, because they've already had like a long film history with this uh, Chuji character. But he also seems to be like a Japanese folklore too. So I think they're trying to interweave that. Like this is a meeting of a character created for Japanese cinema with a character that was Japanese folklore who became Japanese cinema. And let's not forget that Zatoichi is not an ancient story by any means. I mean, Kan Shimozawa had a hand in pretty much all the Zatoichi movies until his death in 68. Yeah. So, um... Actually, I... I, Yeah, all the Zatoichi... Right up to Zatoichi... 
and the one-armed swordsman, I think, is the last uh, the last one he was directly involved in, and that was post-mortem too. Hmm. Um, so, like, by all means, this is not an ancient story. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it's I, I can see them doing that as like a, a cool little like a cool little uh, reference to Japanese history and kind of maybe even you know, time period appropriate. And then, of course, he ends up meeting up with uh, Jimbo later on. Right, like, that becomes a thing, too. But as, again, like, that's another part of this film that just kind of felt weird to me. And, again, like, if I introduce this to somebody, I can imagine them also being like, so who is that guy? Why is he there? I can just kind of shrug and be like, I I have no idea. (laughs) Not, I don't know what to tell you. So, So, yeah. Should we... Let's move on to uh, our Blind Leading the Blind this week. Okay, uh, Blind Leading the Blind. Uh, characters influenced directly or indirectly by the Zatoichi films. Uh, the Blind Swordsman character uh, seems to resonate with people all around the world, and we discuss some of the characters or films or stories that carry that influence. And this week, uh, we have Colonel H. Stinkmeaner from The Boondocks. Uh, the Boondocks, first a comic strip series, and then a animated series for Adult Swim Network, uh, had this episode called Granddad's Fight. And it premiered November 27, 2005. In this case, the character Granddad encounters Colonel H. Stinkmeter. Um, there are two elderly gentlemen, to note that, but Stinkmeter is blind. And he is really, really cranky. Um, he carries a cane. And it seems like he is able to anticipate moves when he gets into these very vulgar worded uh, uh, fights with Granddad. Um, so it looks like he's kind of like Zach Toichi in some ways. He's able to predict moves and whatnot. And just to prove that this is not like a loose association, the main character of the show, Huey, uh, Granddad's grandson... And uh, the narrator for the show is not only obsessed with Japanese culture, but uh, upon seeing this interaction with Stinkmeter, um, this guy who seems to predict movements, Huey has a dream about a blind samurai. And he dreams of a fight with a character that's like Stinkmeter in a bamboo forest. And then becomes determined that he needs to help his grandfather know what he's up against uh, as this legend builds in his mind. And he actually shows his granddad a clip of a Zatoichi film. But it's animated. Highly exaggerated Zatoichi yeah. film. Yeah, not a direct trend, like a direct scene from any of the movies that we'll be watching. But it was like the animation company uh, who did the show doing a representation of Zatoichi. However, Huey does call it Zatoichi, the blind swordsman, not in any particular film or setting, but just proceeds to show the clip. And again, like, kind of looks like him, looks like an average Japanese man in this animation sequence um, who seems very calm during the fight, but he's not holding the sword like Zatoichi. Like we see in the films, Zatoichi holds his sword pointed down in like a reverse stance. And usually his stance is a bit more accentuated by uh, Shintaro Katsu. In this case, it's just kind of like running and slicing through guys and under the assumption that he's blind. But still, um, 
indirect and direct references to the Satoichi film universe. So there you have it. Boondocks, Granddad's Fight. Satoichi's just all over the place. He's everywhere. In our hearts and minds and on our TV screens. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I guess that just about does it for for uh, tonight's episode. Um, we should mention the plugs, of course. Um, I feel like we might end up getting a lot of hate because we neither of us weren't super into this movie. But um, I think that uh, Zatoichi the Fugitive has a bit of a prestige amongst fans of the series. So I apologize, but, you know, different strokes for different folks. Anyway, um, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can email us at blindpodsman at gmail.com. Or you can like us on Facebook. That would be great. Uh, just look for the Blind Podsman on Facebook. Or you can check out the blog spot at blindpodsman.blogspot.com. Um, Tom, uh, a gentleman named Tom, wrote us recently on the Facebook. And I've been meaning to write you back, Tom, if you're listening. I just cannot figure out how to find the messages on the page. So thank you for writing us and thank you for the <laughs> feedback. Uh, Tom did mention that The Fugitive is one of his favorites, so Tom, I'm sorry. Please don't hate us. Um, Anywho, uh, so that just about does it for tonight. Um, Our next episode will, of course, be in two weeks, and that'll be on Zatuichi number five, Zatuichi on the road. Uh, Synopsis is a blind swordsman comes between two warring Yakuza's when he escorts a runaway chambermaid back home. Oh, I thought Um, you were going to say when he... Encounters Saul Paradise because it's on the road. <laughs> that was a bad literary joke, but there you have it. Hopefully, that makes up for any uh, any bad feelings for us not liking the fugitive. Uh, all right. So uh, uh, for the blind podsman, I am Patrick, and for Jason, I am good Jason. night. <laughs> that is Jason. <laughs> good night, everyone.知らぬたこくのセミがセミがなく起きちゃならねえ人来た時には目先が真っ暗になっちまう目先が花から真っ暗だよ風に追われたさすらいも Oh, 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 oh,
Komoriyum